Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them, would you, to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 13 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Connected to Last Time, What Do I Do When I'm Wronged? Part 2. As believers in the first century are in great difficulty and trial, times are tough, families are struggling, situations are serious, not everything is going the way that they would like. And that's really an understatement. And that could be the description of your life. Not everything's going the way you would like. But it really doesn't describe the difficulty that you're experiencing. It's almost as if there's not the right kind of words to describe the feelings that you're going through, the tension that you're feeling, the worry, the anxiety, the wrestling. It's more than just inconvenience. I think things start with inconvenience but it's more than inconvenience. It's a disruption of the comfort and ease that we've become so, com- so familiar with. And for the first century believers, their lives are on the line, literally. There's no other way to say that. Nero has put a death sentence on Christians, and he has stirred up the king, the empire, to turn against them by lying about them and blaming them for the bad behaviors that he himself committed. And they're really in a tough spot. Every part of their life is being tested and challenged. As we've seen, Peter, he speaks to them about remembering that we're pilgrims. Keep a pilgrim mindset. It's hard for us to grasp that, but many studies ago, we, we learned that that word means we're just passing through. This is not our permanent home. It is, it is a place where we are to be used and yielded to God in all that he desires. The rest of the book really describes what it is to be a pilgrim and a sojourner on the earth. Good times, or in this case, in bad times. And that's how he starts out, by reminding us right in verse 1 of chapter 1, he writes to the pilgrims, to those that have been dispersed. But then he reminds them that they're chosen, they're elect, that Jesus in verse 3 has have by his abundant mercy begotten us again to a living hope. That it seems like we're surrounded by death, but God has given us a living hope. How? By the resurrection of Jesus. That there is life after death. We have an inheritance, verse 4, that's incorruptible. And then verse 5, for those that have a sensitive conscience, we're reminded, hey, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, no matter what difficulties, you are kept by the power of God. You're not kept by your good works. You're not kept by your perfect behavior. You're not kept by your performance. You're kept by the power of God. And he says in verse 6, you greatly rejoice. Verse 10, he talked about how the salvation you and I enjoy, the prophets wanted to experience, and they didn't even get to experience it. Then he speaks up in in verse 13, teaching us, hey, gird up the loins of your mind. That's where the battle is. In your mind, stay sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you. Obedience, verse 14, was emphasized. This is chapter one. Not conforming yourself to lust that you lived before. 
but rather the one that's called you as holy, you too live a holy, separated life. He jumps down to verse 22. He says, since you've, this is chapter one, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth, then love one another. Let that be expressed in true love, brotherly, fervent, on fire, remembering that you've been born again, not something that's corruptible, but incorruptible. And then verse one of chapter two, he says, lay aside the malice and the guile and the hypocrisy Don't let it be a part of your life. Desire the pure milk of the word so you might grow, if indeed, or remember that word could be translated, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. You come to him as a living stone, verse four. You were rejected by men, which is what they're personally experiencing, but you have been chosen by God. And together, verse five, we're living stones. We're the body of Christ being built up, a spiritual house, And then he says in verse 11, abstain from fleshly lust. I beg you again as sojourners, stay away from the flesh. Don't feed it. Say no to it. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Have a good testimony. And how is that testimony? Well, then we got into some really challenging practical truths that Peter, Pastor Peter tells a group of men and women boys and girls, families that are under great unfair persecution by the government, he said, submit to them. Submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, which we learned that the line that's drawn is up into sin. The government cannot tell you and command you and demand for you to sin. You're not to submit to that order. But up until that line, yeah, but Ed, I don't like it. I don't want you this. Uh, Get in line. But that's what the word submission means. Fall in line, remember. It's a military word. It means to fall in line. He says, submit. This is how a sojourner lives. Not only that, but submit in business. Now, of course, the business side of this was a very horrific, horrific relationship between the slave master and slaves. And he says, for you Christians that are under that heavy yoke, submit. We applied that into our own day as the employer-employee relationship. Not even close to what the first century slaves of the Roman Empire faced. But it does provide an avenue and an atmosphere for us to really deal with us not liking to be told what to do. Even when we're paid for it. Even when there's an exchange of money. It's a lot like the parable uh, where the, the... the owner gave money at different times to different people and, to, and sent them into the field to work. Uh, but the one that went the last and worked the least got paid of the first, got paid the same as the first one that went in and worked the most. And you got upset about it. And as the parable goes, it was like, wait a minute, didn't you agree? Didn't we agree that this is what you want? Yes. But then when you started to compare with others, well, I don't like my deal. I want a new deal now. And even graciously, God allows new deals in the employment realm to be made. But the heart is submission, to learn to submit. And then the example was, not another person. They didn't say, look at your leader, look at me, Pastor Peter. He said, no, you were called to this, verse 21. This is chapter 2, because Christ suffered for us. We're to follow in his steps. And when you're dealing with the difficulties in your life, 
and you turn to the scriptures and you see what Jesus, you hear what Jesus taught and you see what Jesus did, I want to encourage you, don't be so quick to dismiss the teaching and the example of Jesus when you're looking for answers in your life. Especially when the teachings and example of Jesus is so contrary to what you think the right answer is. Jesus would come on the scene in the first century and what would he say? You have heard it said, but I say to you, you're used to hearing teachings this way. You're used to hearing God represented this way. But I want to tell you as God in human flesh, this is how it really is. And you want to be refreshed in that in a culture that seems to, even among Christianity, want, wants to prop up your comfort and ease and wants to prop up things that don't speak necessarily to your sojourning. Just open up to Matthew chapter 5 and begin to read the Beatitudes. So different then and now to what we would expect is the blessed man and the blessed woman. And it will refresh your mind. Well, the trials in the first century church, when we get to chapter 3, they also, had, they also started to see strife in their marriages. So he speaks to the wives about being submissive to their husbands, even those husbands that aren't obeying the word. Same principle, up into sin. And it is a hard situation. And it is difficult, wives, for you wives in particular that are in that position today. But the Bible says what it says. And God enables you to obey his word. He enables you. And I'm sorry that you're married to a husband that doesn't obey the word. It makes it very hard for you. But the principle is the same. Because someone has sinned against you, does not give you permission to respond in kind. Someone else's sin does not give us permission to respond by sinning against them. And husbands, with the verses that we're instructing to wives under great duress, now he says to the husbands, you learn to dwell with your wives. Pay attention to them. Understand them. Value them. Give honor to them. And we went through all this verse by verse. And he says in verse 8 of chapter 3, be of one mind. And then he jumps into verse 9, and he says, don't return evil for evil. When so much evil surrounded you, it's very natural to want to respond with evil. That's a natural response. It's not the supernatural response. It's the natural one. And I know in my life, and I'm sure you could agree, I don't merely want to live a natural fleshly life. I want to live a supernatural, holy, righteous life empowered by God. And that when evil comes to me, I don't even, I'm not there yet, but I don't even want to think about revenge, let alone do it. I don't even want to have the thought anymore. I want to learn, as this says, hey, on the contrary, blessing. And one of the bliss, biggest blessings that you can offer when evil is done to you is not to return evil for evil. You are blessing that person. And one of the greatest blessings, not only for them, but for you, is not to become all bitter about it and defile yourself after the other person's already moved on to do the next thing and then do the next thing. And that's what we looked at in our time last time, picking up now in verse 13. With all that in mind, he says, and he, who is he that will harm you 
if you become followers of good? Who is it that will harm you if you become followers of good? But even if you should, but even if it happens. So what he's saying is, this is a general statement that says, generally, good people are not harmed on purpose. Living a general good life, and this is, this is a real interesting thing to understand as you're sharing the gospel, because there are a lot of good people in your life. Moral, upstanding, law-abiding, but separated from God. And you, it would do well to acknowledge in, in one of your friend's life, your boss's life, like, you're a good person. There's nothing wrong with telling someone that you're good. I wish there were more people like you in this world. And just validating the good behavior. And, and there does seem to be still, in many cases, like, hey, look, if you do good, you can sidestep a lot of pain. You, you can eliminate a lot of extra pain that you could bring on yourself just by choosing to be good. Now, of course, when you're sharing with your boss or your coworker, your neighbor, being good is not going to bring a person into a right standing with God. But it's going to help them along the way. It's going to help them live a life that is filled with relative blessing and encouragement. But we also need to bring them, and now as we're building a relationship and a bridge with someone, we need to bring them to the place where we, acknowledge, where we can help them acknowledge that being good is not good enough. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we're all in need of a Savior. That the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you turn away and repent from your sins, God will save you. And your good life will become better because the motives of your life will now to be glorifying God. There is a good benefit from being a good person. Verse 14, however believers, this is, not, this is not written to unbelievers, but the application is clear. But to believers, he says, okay, you, you're here and you go, but Ed, I've, I've really done the best I could. I've, been, I've tried to be a good person. I'm a believer. I love Jesus. And so, but I still am treated like this and I'm treated like that. And well, even if you should suffer, for righteousness sake. You are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. You're blessed if you suffer for the right reasons. So if you do good and suffer, there's blessing attached to that. And he quotes here in Isaiah, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. He says in Back in verse 12, notice, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God sees what you're doing. And his ears are open to your prayers. And the face of the Lord is what? Against those who do evil. By doing good and suffering for righteousness sake, you're on the side of God whose face is against evil. Suffering and persecution, and we have mentioned this many times before, but it's worth being reminded it's going to come to us all. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that all who desire to live a godly life or live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Suffering is a part of life. But Peter's saying in the midst of the hardships you're going through, even though suffering is a part, normal part of the Christian life, Peter says this, listen church, don't bring it on yourself. 
Don't bring it upon yourself. Live a life that doesn't cause trouble. Don't do something stupid and then say, oh, look at me, I'm being persecuted for my faith. No, that's not suffering for righteousness sake. You're reaping what you've sown. You've reaped what you've sown. Let the trouble in your life, to the best of your ability, of course, let the trouble in your life be because you're following Jesus in purity and righteousness. And when you're suffering for doing good, we must choose to focus our attention on the blessing it is to obey Jesus. That's a challenge. Because we are, we were raised this way, many of us. Maybe culturally we picked this up along the way. And and it's something like this. If you do good, you'll experience good. If you do bad, you'll experience bad. I mean, even when you go to the dentist, for goodness sake, they would have a little treasure chest. If you made it through the appointment, you could always go into the lobby and go into the treasure chest. And you know what was in there? Lollipops. I'm like, wow, if I can endure the chair. <laughs> I'm taking all my kids there. And even, even adults, you know, you can sneak into the treasure chest too. But if I can endure the chair, if I can do good in the chair, there's rewards at the end. There's rewards for being good. And there's a lack of rewards for not being good. And there's much truth to that. But do you know there's also pain for doing good? And people that do bad are often rewarded for doing bad. And so the key is to remember to keep our eyes on the Lord, especially when things are hard. He says in verse 14, don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, any of, you, any of you that have experienced a real threat, you know, it goes right to the heart, man. It just cuts right to the heart. And if you're a thinker, you might begin to overthink that threat and go, what happens if? And what if this? And what about? And on and on and on it goes. Like, like you could get, <laughs> like we did recently. Okay, half true story, half exaggeration. I want to give it up front here. So we got a letter from our friends at the association They're unnamed, by the way. We have no idea who they are, but they sent us a friendly letter recently letting us know that we're on notice because we had our trash can out in the morning instead of at night. And that's a threat. If you do this again, you're going to get a ticket. You know, I was thinking, maybe it's the wrong house. Maybe it's my neighbor. And then I started thinking about it. I said, no, no, that was actually me. Uh, I was out early that day and I took the trash out seven hours early, and I got the threatening letter. Now, with a threat like that, some people could overthink that to go, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? They're going to give us a bill, and then they're going to find other things, and then we're going to lose our house. No, just don't take your trash can out early in the morning. And they even put it in the letter. Here's the rule. Take it out at night. Thank you for the reminder. But you get letters that threaten a car repossession. You get a letter threatening to lose your job. You get a letter, and and he says, don't let threats be a troubling thing to you. Don't let threats be troubling. Trust the Lord with the things in your life you have no control over. And in this condition, you're being treated bad for doing good. You are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
It's not fair. It's unfair upon unfair upon unfair. In that condition comes a very familiar passage, verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed because it is better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Rather than being fearful, rather than over-exaggerating threats and antagonism, we learn to commit ourselves afresh and anew to Jesus our Lord. Now, this passage in verse 15 is often the place where a person that's into apologetics will take you to substantiate their ministry, apologetics. And that's where we get this word, apologetics. Defense is the word. It's not, when you hear apologetics, it's, the ministry of apologetics is not apologizing for the faith. It rather is the Greek word that means to defend, and to stand for the truth. So a person that's into apologetics, a person that that's a passion for, loves to defend the truth, loves to give uh, knowledge and information that's gonna substantiate biblical truth. And it comes from this passage right here. Be ready, set aside your heart and place in your life to defend, give a defense for your faith, a defense for the Christian faith. One reason you need to know what you believe and why you believe it is because people come into our lives all the time and want to know. They ask good questions. Men and women in our lives ask good questions. They're very observant and they want to know what you believe and why you believe it. And you know when people really begin to watch your life? It's not just when you say you're a Christian. It's not just when you invite someone to church. It's not just when you do good deeds at the office and maybe you're known for, you know, Fridays bringing in pies or things just to bless everyone. You're just known. It's not those times when they're watching. It's those times when they know that you're in the fire. And now everything that you've said along the way in good times is now being tested. And they're wanting to know why you're still continuing on as a Christian. That's really the essence of this. They want to hear you explain. Why don't you give up? Why don't you quit? Why don't you turn on that God who you had all these years of good and now look what's happening in your family. Look what's happening with your health. Look what's happening. Why? Why are you so filled with hope? Why are you not complaining? Why are you not like everyone? Why is is there a difference in your life? I've been watching you with the pies and I've been watching you with the Christmas gifts. I've been watching you, but now I'm super curious. Why? When you're suffering for doing good or you're suffering as a quote unquote good person, you can expect that good questions will come your way. Good questions. And let me just say this, Christians, this is a very important. Good questions demand and require good answers. 
Good questions demand and require good answers. And those good questions that demand good answers, the answers aren't always supposed to come from me. Well, you know, I don't know, but you can email Pastor Ed. No, no, actually, a better way to handle that is, I I don't know, but I'm going to look it up. And I'm going to find an answer to that. I've never heard it asked that way before. I've never even thought about that. I've never even seen it that way before. And instead of sending them to someone else, you got to understand God sent them to you. And there are ways that you can find good answers. Let me give you a free website right now. Now, not every, I'm not endorsing every single article on this website. So there's some things on there that I would disagree with. But for the most part, they do a good job. It's called gotquestions.org. Gotquestions.org. And you can plug in just about any question that's on your mind, and they have thousands of articles there that are generally good. Generally good. And I'd encourage you, if you're looking for answers, that's a great website. I know Pastor Gino Geraci, as he's handed over the ministry there in Littleton to Pastor Jonathan, part of his ministry in the um, now leaving pastoral ministry in into his future, he's starting to work with gotquestions.org a lot. And he writes a lot of the answers for them as well, gotquestions.org. Another one that I've mentioned before on the radio and I mentioned here is this book right here. It's called When Critics Ask. And it says it's a popular handbook of Bible difficulties. This is no longer in print, so you will have to order it if you want it used. And so you have to find where you can get it used and where you get used books but I have used this particular book since it came out, like when it was first published. So it was published in 1992. Uh, perfect timing because I got saved uh, in 1991. And I really wanted to know solid answers. And one of the reasons why the author is Norman Geisler, G-E-I-S-L-E-R. It's actually part of a two-volume resource. Um, when critics ask is the Bible difficulty. And then there's a thinner one, when skeptics ask. Great resource. And I'll tell you why I like it. It's not just, here's the question, here's the answer. He gives you different options. He says, well, some people believe this. Some people believe this. This is what I believe and why. And it gives you the biblical substantiation of why he came to his conclusion. And the reason I like that is because it not only gives you the answer, but it also helps you to think it through. Because you may just come to the conclusion, you know what, I don't agree with Geisler. I like the biblical reason for point one. Great. Welcome to the body of Christ. The body of Christ that loves to disagree about secondary things. That's just the way it is. But if you can disagree about secondary things because you have a firm biblical belief, great, hold to it. Study to show yourself approved. The workman not needeth not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth, the Bible says. And you can learn how to do this. You don't need to go to school, although that would help. You can learn by simply reading, praying, and allowing the Holy Spirit to help you through. Because there are some difficulties in the Bible, for sure. I happen to spend my life with the wrestling with the Bible, but you not so much. And the time that you do go through the scriptures devotionally or reading to test everything that I've taught and hold fast to what is good, you will come across difficulties and you don't want to just dismiss them. You want to learn through them so the Holy Spirit will use you. You want to be ready to give a defense to everyone, it says in verse 15, that's going to ask you. And notice what they're going to see. What will prompt the question? Well, they're going to ask you a reason for the hope that's in you. Now, how would they possibly know 
that there's hope in you, but by your response to difficult times. Your outward response, and remember, the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks by your words and your actions, especially when the fires are turned up. But the danger, instead of being ready, instead of being ready in difficult times, instead of being ready to talk about Jesus, the danger is always to run away and quit. And I've met too many that have a tendency just to step back when times get tough and give up because the pressure is so intense. But Peter says that's exactly the time to be ready. Not ready, he says, to blast people with Bible answers, to belittle people because they don't know or, you know, the question was simple and, and you go, oh, what kind of a simple question? You don't even know. Like, it's not to belittle people. It's not to badger people. It's not to beat down people with the Bible, but rather he says, give the answer with what? Meekness and fear. Fear of God and a meekness toward man. Meekness, you could say, is gentleness. And fear, you could also write next to it, I think another version translates this, gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. We're to always be ready. We're to set our lives apart for this very reason, which is counterintuitive once again. When you're in trials, difficulties, you have a tendency to just think about yourself. You have a tendency to just think about getting out. You have a tendency to think about, man, this is not fair, this is wrong. And we all go through those seasons. But here's the way out. Be ready for the opportunities that your trial is going to bring in other people's lives. Be ready for the opportunities for your trial that God, especially when you're being uh, persecuted unfairly, be ready to give a defense. Notice the position in verse 16 is having a good conscience, a clean conscience. And this is a key for all of us living in Jesus. I I like to think of uh, my conscience as keeping short accounts And knowing that there isn't anything that I know of. There isn't anything that I'm hiding. As I put my pillow down on, uh, my head down on the pillow every night, I have a peace that comes from God because there's nothing hidden between me and Him. You can't buy a good conscience. You can't manufacture it. You can't work toward it. But you can live with one. You can live with a clean conscience. You can't say, as much as I know, I'm clean before the Lord. Or with someone else, as much as I know, I'm good with you. I mean, as much as possible, I choose to live at peace with you. As much, and if you have something to add into my relationship, my family, you go, no, Ed, this is, this is what we need to Well, then now, it's not because I don't have a clean conscience. It's because I didn't know. And living with a clean conscience just helps us along the way. Because we live in the light, the Bible says. Turn over to 1 John. We haven't turned anywhere. Would you turn to 1 John with me? That's going to be just a couple pages over from Peter. 1 John to the right, uh, chapter 1. I love this verse. It helps our clean conscience. I'm not stinking around. I'm not lying. I don't have anything in my private life that if revealed would embarrass me or embarrass my Lord. A clean conscience helps me when accusations come. Because one of the things that will come, uh, one, of the, one of the difficulties of trials of doing good will be false accusations. 
And, and people will accuse you of things that is the exact opposite, like on the far end of the spectrum of your current life. And, and how will you be able to be ready? How will you be able to give an answer? How will you be able to give an apologia, is the Greek word, for your faith in times like that? Well, it requires a clean conscience. It requires, no, that's false. Yeah, but everybody's saying it. I, I don't care if everybody's saying it. Between me and my Lord, my life is clean. And it's not true. And accusations do come and they will come. And notice he says here in verse 5 of chapter 1. 1 John. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Or to have a clear conscience. If you have a guilty conscience, you've given ammunition to the enemy of your souls to beat you up and condemn you. And then he hits you. And then he hardens you. And then he encourages what's being hidden in the darkness. However, when you confess it, Jesus will cleanse you. When you repent of it, you can leave it in your past. And you will find that God will give you the most peaceful, restful night sleep. He will begin to ease. There's no more secret sins, no more junk that we feel helpless about. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, and we live and walk in that victory. We have a good conscience. Why? So in verse 16, when they, back to Peter, when they defame you as evildoers, and remember, they're being defamed as evildoers for doing good, which is just so painful to endure. It is so not fun. Where they are literally being lied about for the worst of the worst, but they're actually doing good. And the purpose of being ready and the purpose of sharing and the purpose of having a clean conscience and the purpose of living in the light is what? So that those that revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Life in, that, that flows from us as believers should provoke in unbelievers a response. And the response is either going to be evil for your doing good, or it's going to be curiosity for your response to the evil being done to you while you're doing good. Our lives should provoke a response. Our lives of obedience and righteousness, living with a clean conscience. He says the summary in verse 17 and just allow the, this is one of those verses where you, you and I, we need to allow the Bible to say what it says and believe it. And he says it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Which feels the worst. It feels bad to suffer for doing good. And I'm sure that some of us have read this text at one point in our lives. No, 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 Bible. It's actually better not to suffer at all. <laughs> It's actually better not to suffer at all. But Peter says, look, this is life as pilgrims and sojourners when the pressure's on and it's layer after layer after layer and it's unfair and it's just plain evil. 
and your response is good and their response is more evil and your response is good and their response is more evil. Keep your conscience clear. Live in an obedient, abiding life and be ready to engage a lost world. When they ask you, I don't, there, there's something different about you. There's something different. You know, when, when people will say something about our church family, this particular church family, but it's true across the board, really. But when they say, well, you know, I'm not going to go to Calvary anymore because it's just full of hypocrites. We're taking the heat for somebody's hypocrisy. Maybe it was ours, but probably not. But we're taking the heat for someone else's behavior. And our first response is what? Defensiveness. But the reality is, is that how we respond to that will give us an opportunity, if the person allows, for us to talk about the very issue that's on their heart. And one of the things you should agree with, even if it wasn't you, is that, yeah, hypocrisy is among us. This is part of the package. There's hypocrisy in the church. There's also hypocrisy in the library and at Safeway. And you still go there. And you open up opportunities to go, yeah, let's just validate the fact that they experienced something by someone. Yeah. And now what? How can we help you get over this? How can I, as a part of the body of Christ, interconnected with each other, how can I help you for the hypocrisy you experienced from us? How can I help you? I'm sorry. And you know, if you come back another time, you'll probably experience it again and again, because there's a lot of hurting people there. There's a lot of people whose lives are upside down, sideways. And you know, maybe you hit a guy on the wrong day, or you hit a gal on the wrong night, and, and it was just bad. Let, let's, let's talk this through, because think about it. Even if they were going through a difficult time, they were still in a church worshiping God. They, they were still steadying on. They were still wanting to grow in God's grace. And you can turn these things around instead of being defensive, instead of suffering for doing evil ourselves, instead of fighting and shaking the fist, we have opportunity to really progress the kingdom of God in difficult times. That's what Peter's saying. You have that opportunity. I have that opportunity. And it all stems from verse 17. Do I believe that it's better here are my options. There's only two. To suffer in the will of God for doing good or doing evil. Which way do I want to suffer? And over and over again, I find that my answer to that question is, I want to suffer for doing good. That's even hard to say. You might want to say it out loud tonight, sometime tonight. Say, you know what, Lord, I want to suffer according to your will for doing good. I know you want to say, I don't want to suffer, and I respect that. You can say that too. You know, actually, Lord, I really don't want to, but here is where I'm at. I am suffering, and I am going through it, and it is painful, but I want my life to remain with a clean conscience, enduring the defamation, enduring the slander, enduring the things that are designed to destroy my life while I'm still doing good conduct, verse 16, in Christ. And that God will work it all out. That they'll be ashamed. Maybe here. Maybe at the great white throne judgment. Maybe it was another believer and they're at the Bema seat and see how they wasted their whole life. While you were doing good, 
and they continue to do evil, God used you and never used them again. Maybe that's where they'll be ashamed. I don't know. That's not my business. Jesus makes it really simple. Do good, Ed. Yes, Lord. But they're doing this, Lord. No, just do good. Keep your eyes on me. What we learn in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. He completed the work that the Father gave him, and so can you in him. So Father, I know that it is a challenge to talk on these matters, especially for those listening that are in deep pain right now. I think of the divorces that are taking place right now, the battle over children and custody. I think of those that lost their job from someone that lied about them or doctored a document. Or um, I think of pastors and leaders that are being just fried on Facebook by so-called other believers. And, uh, and, and, it, and it's just people believe that stuff. And, and uh, it, I, I, I just pray that we would have the tenacity and the endurance to do good, to stay close. And I pray, God, that we would have in our hearts a desire to connect, a desire to use even the pain in our own lives as a tool to connect with other people experiencing that same thing. That's what you said would happen. You said the comfort that we received we would be able to comfort others. And it's, it's, it's just the lessons we've learned we can give to others. The things we've endured we can give to others. Because we have a clean conscience before you, Lord. We didn't take things in our own hands. We didn't do something sly under the table. We didn't make it the issue of our lives, but rather we continued on day by day, step by step trusting you with our lives. So I just pray a special anointing of faith on us tonight. We receive, God, that gift, that mustard seed of faith. Just the wrestling tonight of trusting you that it's better to suffer for doing good than evil. We just don't always believe that truth. So let it be, let it be um, solidified among us tonight that when we're wronged, we will trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's... We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.